As the Carolina Panthers' original radio play-by-play announcer, Bill Rosinski had a 50-yard line seat for some of the intoxicating excitement of those early years. There was a great concern that if there were a lot of lopsided early losses, who's going to make that trip to Clemson? And as the case was, it turned into a magical season. Stay tuned as we celebrate 25 years of Panther football with former play-by-play man Bill Rosinski. 25 seasons of Panthers football, a celebration of the players, coaches, and other people who have contributed to the organizational success. Now to Mick Mixon. We promise you an excellent podcast this time because our guest is a paid professional communicator. We celebrate 25 seasons of Carolina Panther football with Bill Rosinski, the team's original and 10-year radio play-by-play voice. Thank you for coming in and spending a few minutes, Bill. Uh, my pleasure, Mick. And I still, even though some people might not know this, I call Charlotte. is still my home. So I've been living here since uh, the team started back in 95, 96, and uh, still enjoy the city, lo- loving life. You had a similar job with Atlanta Falcons yes. in 94, moved here then. What was it like? Bill, in and around this region when a national football team arrived here and and started to get traction? Well, it was interesting because the stadium that we are now in would not be finished until 1996. So there was no place to play in Charlotte. It was being built. They practiced. And how how ironic is this that uh, they would practice down in Rock Hill at Winthrop, which will suddenly become (laughs) – yeah. We, we've come full circle with this story for the Panthers. So they would practice there during the regular season. Training camp was at Wofford. And the first regular season games that first season were, were at Clemson, which was uh, no easy travel for the people in the Charlotte area because uh, somehow these orange barrels keep popping up along 85, yeah. making life miserable. But that was one of the unique parts of it because – of, of training in South Carolina, not playing any games in Charlotte, and then going to Clemson to play regular season home games. It was unique. And the players will tell you that it was a bonding experience for them because they would take buses from a training camp or wherever over to the, the home games and pick out different movies that they were going to watch on these little bus rides, the two-hour rides to Clemson. So it was a unique experience not only for the fans who had to make that trip for those uh, 10 home games, but also the players. So Dom Capers is the first head coach. He only has a four-year run. But how important a figure is he, as you see it, Bill, in in the history of this franchise? Well, he started it along with uh, Bill Polian and Mike McCormick. I guess you take a look at that that triumvirate there, the guys who put this roster together for 95 and then 96, that great season where they ended up going to the NFC Championship game. And I, I think the belief was they had to win with defense. There was a, you know, even back then there was a philosophy about how good the Steelers had been. And I think the other team that the organization looked at to model themselves after were the San Francisco 49ers. Now, remember, this is mid-90s. So uh, Capers came in, built the defense, knew if they could play good defense, they would at least be competitive and keep people in games. And I know talking to Bill Polian, he – there was a great concern that if there were a lot of lopsided early losses, who's going to make that trip to Clemson? Uh, and as the case was, it turned into a magical season. Uh, ended up, people were actually in November of 1995 uttering the P word, playoffs. Yeah. So I think Capers in that regard, uh, being a first-time head coach coming from Pittsburgh and having that experience, and then the leadership of Polian and McCormick and putting the roster together, 
uh, huge, huge impact the first couple of years. So those of us who carry tape recorders, microphones, cameras around for a living, did, did Dom Capers understand that end of the business? Was he easy to work with and, and mediagenic in your view? Sort of. I, I think he he didn't mind doing the radio show. He didn't mind doing the television shows that we did. But, you know, if you knew Dom, he was, uh, he was all business. So I think he would put up with dealing with the media. It was funny. When, he'd meet, when he would read an injury report, he would literally read it like the doctor wrote it. Instead of a bruised shoulder, he'd go a cracked clavicle of the FF bomb bone and – Guys are like going, what? Oh, he's got a sore shoulder. Oh, okay, thanks. So that's that's what he was like to deal with. But he was uh, you know, a great communicator with the players. So I, I think in that regard, I, I he might have been a little shy as far as dealing with the fans. But I remember one television show that we taped in here, and this was in 96 when the team was on this run and uh, it had been embraced by uh, the community at this point because they were finally playing in Charlotte. And he was introduced – was doing a, a Panther Talk TV show with Delano Little, and I was there to talk to Dom, and Dom got introduced last to our live studio audience, and he got this standing ovation from the, you know, 100 people that might have been in that studio that day, and you could see him blush. He was, like, overwhelmed by the fact that these people were standing and applauding him for what he was doing as a head coach, so I thought that was pretty cool. Unfortunately, these were the same people who were calling for his head <laughs> two years later, but, hey, that's life coaching. 66-year-old Bill Rosinski, our guest on the podcast. So that 96 team at 12-4 and had some big personalities on it, seven wins in a row to close out the regular season. Uh, what do you remember about some of the, the characters and the character of that team? Well, let's first start with why that team became what it was. It was a good team in 95. Kerry Collins had become the starting quarterback. Remember Frank Reich? started the first three games. Jack Trudeau got in about a quarter, and then Kerry Collins took over. So here we go to 96. The defense was okay, but in 96, they had four crucial free agents to this team who had a lasting impact. Uh, the first was Steve Berline, who became a backup quarterback and actually engineered a couple of big wins that playoff season. Uh, Eric Davis who would then set eventual records for interceptions for this franchise. Kevin Green was added at linebacker. Lamar Lathan was already here, so suddenly you had Salt to go with Pepper, and you had that great linebacking core that included Carlton Bailey and Sam Mills. And then uh, last but not least, they brought in a guy named Wesley Walls, who's going into this uh, ring of honor, the Hall of Honor here. So, Mick, you look at those four guys that they brought in, add to the character that the team already had, and you could see in practices how big Walls was going to be in this offense. You could see the leadership of Eric Davis, who'd been on Super Bowl teams in San Francisco. You could see the leadership of Kevin Green and the enthusiasm. You talk about characters. Kevin was crazy. Kevin hated to practice, but he, he loved to play the game. So you had those guys, and then you had uh, a receiver like Willie Green step up. Uh, or Anthony Johnson, who became the, the key running back that year. People forget Derek Moore was the running back in 95 who really played well for this team. But he wanted, he wanted more money, and uh, the team said forget it. So Anthony Johnson became the guy. And you've got Mark Carrier. You've got Willie Green making plays. You've got Wesley Walls at tight end. And then you've got Collins developing as a quarterback, Burline to back him up. And then a defense that adds 
a guy like Kevin Green. So it was, uh, and the experience, Pat Terrell, uh, Brett Maxey. You go down the list of guys on that defense. They were all leaders. They had, they had been in other situations. Remember, this is a second-year team. Most everybody had played somewhere else and had experienced either great success or horrific losing. And they put it all together for a magical run. Most of us collect memories, kind of collect people in this in this business. Bill, where would you rank in your own personal kind of memory book the home playoff win against Dallas to go to the NFC Championship game at Green Bay that year? Uh, it was a remarkable night. Uh, I, I remember going up to uh, Jerry Richardson, the owner of the team, before the game, and the crowd was packed in. People were arriving into the stadium, and I, I said, savor the moment. Because, you know, being in Atlanta for three years, and they had gone to the playoffs the year before I got there, but those four years were just, you know, you thought you were going to be good. It never happened. And in the, in the NFL, as Jerry Glanville would tell you, that man stands for not for long. So your success can be fleeting in this league. And I remember, you know, he smiled, he looked at me, and he said, uh, this, is, this is incredible, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And then the game was... You know, here come the Cowboys, America's team, and the Panthers just kicked their butt. They knocked out Deion Sanders in the game. They knocked off Michael Irvin in the game. Uh, Troy Aikman really struggled. The The thing I remember most is Sam Mills with the interception to kind of seal the thing mm-hmm. and the emotion that he had in the locker room. I remember his interview with Jim Zoki after that game ended. And then after it was all said and done, uh, the team goes to the locker room. The fans are still in the stadium. And the team decides to come back out. And just high five the fans. They did a loop around the stadium. Just a, uh, you, you realize then what sports and a team can do for a community, and what in turn those players, uh, the emotion that they have for the fans who supported them. It was uh, something this organization. If you're around back then, you'll never forget. Some great memories, no doubt. So Dom Capers has four seasons. Then George Seifert for three. <laughs> yes. To what degree was that relationship stressful? With with Seifert and me, oh, with that. or Seifert and everybody. Well, I'll use the word I'll use the word zany because George <laughs> George would use that term in very odd situations. Uh, George was his own guy, and you knew when he came in, not only was he the head coach, but he was the general manager. Because uh, if people forget Dom, Dom's last year, which was '98, uh, Polian had left, Dominelli, the head scout, had left. And Dom was kind of by his lonesome there. And Marty Herney was involved with the, with the franchise back then. But with the hiring of Seifert, you bring in a guy who was a Super Bowl-winning coach with the San Francisco 49ers. He called the shots. That's the one thing you knew, that any personnel decisions, anything that was going on with who was in and out of that lineup or who was being signed and who was let go involved George Seifert. And he did have... Some success, you know, it, people forget it. You know, people remember that 1-15 in 15 season, which was his last, and it was a brutal year. But there were, there were signs of life in the offense. Burline had become the starting quarterback. They had a wide receiver named Pat Jeffers who was uh, really lighting it up, and unfortunately Pat got hurt in a preseason game in Pittsburgh, tore up his knee, was never the same again. Uh, this, this, this team could score points. Wesley Walls was still on the team then. And they were good offensively. The problem was Seifert was a defensive guy, and the defense was just awful. I mean, just ranked near the bottom of the league. So he was, he was unique in that regard. Uh, I would do radio shows and coaches' shows, and there was one time he ever, ever opened up to me 
And it was there was a game we played against Dallas at home, and there was a third down call that Burline made, or maybe it was a fourth down call, but it was like one of these quick outs, and they it wasn't a great offensive call. And Bill Musgrave was the offensive coordinator at the time, and I, I believe Musgrave then quit the team after that game. And I remember talking, doing George's coach's show that next week, and we had taped the show. He didn't say much about it. And I'm walking out, and I, I taped it in, in his office. And I'm walking out of his office, and he goes, Bill. And I turned around, and I go, yeah, coach. And he said, it was like your son telling you he doesn't want to be part of your family anymore. And he turned around and laughed. <laughs> oh, geez. Like, oh, wow. You know, that was, uh, that was pretty – that was one of the few times I would ever have, you know, George open up. There were times we, – we taped a television show one time, and I asked him a question. He gave me a one-word answer. <laughs> And he just sat there, and then he just started laughing. He was pulling my chain. He was just trying to be funny. We're taping the show, and we ended up doing it. So there were, you know, instances where George was could be rather humorous. He knew I was an I Love Lucy fan, and he would ask me about questions about it walking from practice now and again. So you're like, I Love Lucy. Huh? What episode stands? Like, <laughs> oh okay. God. Okay. So that, that's, that's the type of guy he was. But unfortunately, the 1-15 in 15 season came, and – that was, you know, he made the mistake. He's the one that told Steve Berline he didn't want him on the team anymore. And I remember Steve telling me that he went back to George the next day because his wife didn't want to move out of Charlotte. She said, "Tell Steve, tell him we'll hang around and do anything. I'll be the third guy. Hold the clipboard. And Steve told me he walked into George's office and said, look, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll be the third guy. I want to I help the team. I don't want to go anywhere. And George looks at him and says, I don't want your help. And that was the end of the relationship with Steve Berline. So then, uh, you know, they make some mistakes at quarterback. Eventually, they draft uh, Chris Wanky. They go one and fifteen. But I will say this: George Seifert's going away gift was his last draft class, which uh, included Steve Smith in the third round, Chris Jenkins in the second round, and Dan Morgan in the first round. I would say that's pretty heady stuff. Help build the foundation for <laughs> yes. the remarkable two thousand and three season. Just a couple of more questions for. Panthers radio voice, original radio voice, Bill Rudzinski on our podcast. Bill, the 03 season and the Super Bowl has been well chronicled, well talked about, but you got some huge personalities on that team. When did you and when did Panther fans kind of know that Jake DeLone was going to be special? Well, I guess the first time he showed up and played, that game against Jacksonville will live in infamy because Rodney Pete had been the starting quarterback. Funny thing about Jake is he had signed with the team that summer. And I remember going on a couple of caravan trips with the team, and Jake was on one of them. And we would stop at schools or we'd have lunches and players, all the cheerleaders would be there and players would sign autographs. And I, I remember seeing Jake at one of these that summer. No one was even talking to the guy. Nobody knew who he was. I felt sorry for him. So here he is. He comes in. Rodney Pete had started that year. Awful first half against Jacksonville. And the decision made, Jake, you're in. And that decision, and I will, I will you know, because when you look at the Panther history, of addressing the quarterback position in the draft until Cam Newton that was never a high-priority list for this team. They would draft quarterbacks, but no franchise guy. And they got lucky with Jake DeLome because who knew? So you knew Jake was a leader right away, but that season you just had to, okay, the comeback against Jacksonville, he hits Ricky Prohl to win the game. The next week we're in Tampa winning the whole game and then the Bucks score – basically no time left, and an extra point wins the game. 
And we had already blocked two field goals. And I remember looking at, at, at Jim Zoki and, and Eugene in the booth, and I said, we blocked two field goals. Can we block an extra point? Bingo. We blocked the extra point. They win that game. They went to Indianapolis. I think the game in Indianapolis, if you look back at that season, the great start they had, they went to Indy with a healthy Peyton Manning and a, a, a really good Colts football team and beat them. I think it was overtime, but they beat them. That, to me, was the game where you said to yourself, you know, we, okay, we got lucky against Jacksonville. We beat the Bucks. We blocked an extra point. How many times are you going to do that? But that win in Indianapolis, I think, sent everybody a message around the league that this team was for real. took a while to finally clinch the division. But then, uh, obviously, the, the the magical ride to the Super Bowl was incredible. Let's end this chat with Bill Rosinski with a little bit of shop talk because, Bill, we're on a podcast right now. There's a, there are generations of people listening to this podcast that know all about podcasts, but they don't know about the name, for example, Roman Gabriel, mm-hmm. uh, one of your former color analysts, yes. a quarterback on a par with John Unitas, with uh, with uh, Bart Starr, with Fran Tark, with some of the greats that have ever played. What was it like sharing a booth with former number 18 for the Rams, Roman Gabriel? Roman was larger than life because we weren't that different age-wise. Maybe he's 10 years older than I was. I don't know how Roman is old is now. But I remember watching when I was a kid in, this, in the mid-late 60s, and you'd get two NFL games. You'd get a 1 o'clock and a 4 o'clock game. And usually that 4 o'clock game was either the Rams or 49ers. And if it was the Rams, it was Roman Gabriel who was this big, huge, tall, strong. I mean, now he could probably be a linebacker. That's how big these guys are now. But back in the day, in the 60s, for a guy his size to be out there and play the quarterback position, and he was good. He played on some really good Rams teams. He will tell you now and again, George Allen didn't give the offense much credence. George wanted to win with defense, had the fearsome foursome and all those guys. But I was actually blessed to not only work with Roman, but one of his great receivers on that team. I worked with Jack Snow back in my old Westwood One days, so I knew Jack. And Jack later became a part of the Rams radio broadcast. So, uh, in fact, that's one I'll, I'll never forget this night, Mick. We were in St. Louis, played the Rams. Might have been 95, 96. And I went to dinner in St. Louis with Jack Snow and Roman Gabriel. And I sat there for two hours and never said a word. And people in the restaurant were, like, just, like, pointing and looking, you know. And and Jack would tell stories about Roman. Roman would tell stories about Jack, about George Allen. They both made – Jack was on Bewitched. I was asking him how – if Elizabeth Montgomery was – I loved her. I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, was she real nasty or is she a gem? He goes, Rosie, she's an 11. And I'm going, oh, good, good. Roman did a movie with uh, John Wayne, The Undefeated. I mean, so this is this conversation I'm having with this guy, and they're just telling stories. It, w- it was unbelievable. But Roman played at NC State. There is still a move by some people to try to get him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he didn't win a lot of championships because, unfortunately, the Green Bay Packers were there. Right. But stats-wise, career-wise, Roman Gabriel was one special football player, and he was great. He, you know, you work with different guys. Working with Eugene Robinson, Eugene, Eugene was a defensive back. So he approached a game differently than a quarterback would. In Atlanta, I work with Jeff Van Oat, offensive lineman. Those guys think differently than anybody thinks on how, how a football game plays out. In fact, I remember Eugene, I think we were in Tampa, second game of the year, that one with the blocked extra point. He's yelling out of, the, out of our booth at Mike Minner trying to tell him what's happening next. And I'm like looking up, I'm going, Eugene, he can't hear you up here. Just sit down. You'll be okay. But back to Roman, a, a larger-than-life guy, 
beloved by the NC State community still. I mean, if you follow ACC sports, and especially NC State, you know who Roman Gabriel is. And I believe he's still out in uh, somewhere in the Wilmington area, yeah. somewhere out there. And he's, he's had some health issues, but I think, I, I think he's still, uh, still going strong. Looking back on 25 years of Panther football with Bill Rosinski, we could go on for a long time. Bill, appreciate your time. Thank you for coming by. My pleasure. Isn't a podcast just a radio show on tape? Is it even on tape? (laughs) We don't don't do tape anymore. Okay. My pleasure, Rick. No doubt the press corps covering the Panthers back when Bill worked looked quite different from the bloggers, tweeters, Instagrammers, and Facebookers of today. Next time on the podcast, we'll get the historical perspective of the Panthers' legendary former director of communications, Charlie Dayton.